Now, <clears throat> speaking of summer and all the things that we do during the summertime, how many of you have to cut the grass today? Anybody, anybody cut grass already this weekend? All right, no, all right. Anybody pay to have their grass cut this weekend already? Okay, so you, yeah, I see you out there. All right, so when it, when it comes to grass and grass getting cut, there's really three types of people. There's the people who pay for it to be done, all right? Now, I can't do what y'all do yet. I haven't got to that place in my life where I can just go spend money to let people do something I can do. Um, then there's the type of people who are my riding lawnmower people, all right? Now you get out there, you're that riding lawnmower, and then there's the, you flex on you people with those zero turns, and you're just out there in your neighborhood just buzzing around, going like 45 miles an hour across your yard, swiveling on stuff, just hitting this action. We see you out there. Like, we want to be you. Every, everybody wants to be you, guy. Even the people who pay to have their lawn secretly want to be you in your zero turn. And then there's my people, the push mower people. And none of that self-propelled sissy stuff, like real old school push mower stuff, right? <laughs> Amen. Or, or what I refer to as a character builder. That's what we, talk, that's what we call it in the Shoemake household, a character builder. Now, I have two sons. Uh, one is five, getting ready to be six, and one is nine. One of the things that we've been progressing in their life is them getting to the place where this whole cutting the grass thing with the push mower, aka character builder, becomes their job, all right? <laughs> And so for the last three summers, I've been easing my oldest son Titus into this. And I've started even this summer easing Ezra into it as he's kind of hit that crest. Five, all right, we're getting behind. We're going we're gonna to start learning some things. Uh, you guys are looking at me weird right now. Like, how in the world? You know, calling defects on me for making five years old cut grass. Anyway, so this is what I do in my house. So seven-year-old summer, Titus was able to get on the thing. And again, like... This is a two-scale representation. His hands are up here on the lawnmower, and he's trying to push it. Now, I'm smart. I'm not trying to torture him. The only way he could actually cut the grass is while he was going downhill. So I get him on the thing, and because of momentum and because of just gravity, he's able to go kind of down some of the hills and get actually the grass cut. I grab it, and then I turn around, and I take it back up the hill. All right, that's what we're doing. Now, last summer when he was able to get on there, he was able to have it and be able to push it by himself. I didn't even have to keep a hand on it. He he was able to kind of push it by itself. Now, granted, I, the only thing I'm OCD about is those lines in the yard. Amen, right? Like I could care less about anything. I could care less about, you know, how the you know stuff in our house that Jessica organizes and makes sure it's perfectly. I don't really worry about that. But the lines in the yard, I want the lines to be straight. And so I keep a hand on there, make sure those are good. Now, this year, this summer, Titus is nine years old. I had that Mufasa moment like he had with Simba. It is time. We are gonna do this almost all the way by ourselves. All right? And so now, Grant, I had to crank that thing up. You know, I, I did that. But, but once he got on, we're able to go one down that way. We're able to turn that bad boy around. We're able to get that. Now I'm walking beside him. I'm still trying, because I want my lines to be right. I'm walking beside him. <laughs> and we did the whole front yard back and forth. Me just kind of walking beside him, make sure we stay in line. He did the whole front yard by himself. Now when we go to the backyard, backyard's got a little steeper of a hill. I let him take it downhill. He walked right beside me. And then once we got to the bottom, I took over and I pushed it up the hill because he ain't quite there yet. He only weighs like 57 pounds. 
So I took over from that spot. Now I'm telling you the story because as kids progress, as they grow physically, there are expectations that parents put on them. As you mature, there comes this moment in time where kind of line in the sand gets drawn and goes, it's time that you start doing this. You need to move from just sitting around looking out the window. Like when you remember when they were babies, and they look out the window at daddy cutting grass and it's cute and everything else. And I remember when I was out there doing that and I was like, your time's coming. You, you better <laughs> believe it's coming. But these lines in the sand happen where you go, it's time that you start doing this. And the pastors of the church in the book of Hebrews is hitting one of those moments where he kind of steps out of the theological stuff that he's been leaning into and these bigger principles about Jesus being a great high priest. And he kind of steps back and kind of just kind of pulls, pulls over to the side of the road and says, hey, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about about all of this, but he issues this reprimand to them. He says, it's actually time that I move on and teach you guys deeper things, but I can't because you're not maturing spiritually the way you should. And he issues this reprimand that may not just be for them, but also may be for us. If you got a Bible, go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter five. I'm gonna be at the very end of that chapter. Hebrews five, I'm gonna start at verse 11. I'd invite you to come and read along with me. Going 11 through 14 today. 5, 11 through 14. This is the word of God. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If you can't say amen, you've got to kind of read that and go, ouch. Because that's one of those ones where you're like, man, you're really letting them have it. And you can read something like this and go... He just got through this whole passage about explaining Jesus and Jesus is great high priest. He introduced this concept that we're gonna unpack probably next week but in great detail that Jesus is in the priestly order of this guy, Melchizedek, which again, we talked about that's gonna be somewhat of a complicated, not really complicated, more so complex thing that he's gonna introduce to them and explain to them. But before he goes into something that's a little bit deeper, a little bit meatier, he goes, listen, I have a lot to say about this and I wish I could go off on this but you guys may not even be ready for this because it seems like you're not where you need to be as far as your spiritual maturity. Now, we go, why is he roasting these people? Why is he letting them have it? Here is why. He's letting them have it because I believe the Holy Spirit has given him a clue, given him a vision into what is coming for this church. Remember, this is a group of people who come from a Jewish Hebrew background. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. And he's writing this book to them in the midst of them facing hardships in life. Now, what is going on? And again, to understand why he's saying what he's saying, you've got to understand the context of what's going on then. When you get that, then you can get what it means for you right now. He's explaining this to them. Because he knows, I believe, 
by either the revelation of the Holy Spirit or what he's able to see coming in his own wisdom that things are not going to get better for these people. That's why over and over again in the book of Hebrews, you see this pastor lean into his church and say words like don't drift, hold fast, continue to hope and trust and boldly approach this throne of grace in Jesus. He's telling them not to shrink back. He's continuing to encourage them with everything he can. And he even issues a warning here in this passage because he knows that something is coming. Now, we have all of history to be able to look at and prove that he actually was 100% right. And it did get worse for this church at Hebrews. And so his words were mission critical for them to be able to make it through what they made it through. Give you a little bit of history lesson. I believe the book of Hebrews is written somewhere between 60 and 70 AD, after Jesus rises from the grave, goes and sends to heaven. It's written somewhere in that 60 to 70 AD time. Now, as far as the setting, like where the church is at, the Hebrew church is at, things can get a little bit more cloudy from that side of stuff. We don't have the luxury like we do with the book of Hebrews that we do with the book of Ephesians. When we read the book of Ephesians, we know where, it's, who, where they live, in Ephesus. When we read the book of Philippians, we know where they live. Where? Philippi. Yeah, like it's there. It's written in the title because that's where they're from. Hebrews is a little bit different. So scholars, for the most part, think that this fledgling, kind of growing, budding church of believers, who, Hebrew believers, were, were, were likely in one of two locations. They were likely either in Jerusalem, which is the center for Judaism, all, all the Jews all the Hebrew people, Jerusalem was the hub. Jerusalem is the city, the capital of the Jewish faith. Now these people were now, their primary faith was faith in Jesus Christ, but they were coming from Jewish heritage. They were Christians who were having a Jewish heritage. So they were either there in Jerusalem, that's one city that this church was likely in. The other city it was likely in was Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. They're, they're right there, there in Rome. It's either one of these two places. Now. I'm gonna tell you why this is important. Regardless of which one of those places it was in, persecution busts out against anybody who's a follower of God. In AD 70, which I believe that this book to the church of Hebrews is written before AD 70, there was this guy named Titus. And Titus was the emperor for Rome, or no, he was an emperor, he's a commander for Rome. He leads the military. And what he does is during the Passover feast, thousands upon thousands of people who are Jewish descend there in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. What they do is they're trying to snuff out all of these Jewish people. And there's a revolt from the Jewish people. So the Jews start fighting the Romans and this giant battle happens. The Roman military besieges all of the city of Jerusalem while all of these people are there in Jerusalem and thousands upon thousands of Jews are slaughtered there in Jerusalem. This is where the destruction of the temple actually takes place. In the gospel of Mark, Mark uh, Jesus refers to what's called the abomination of desolation. Many people think that this thing that happens there at the temple, there as Jerusalem falls, as this is crushed, that that's actually part of what he is referring to. Blood fills the streets. People are, because of their faith in God, and, and many people even in this moment would have been Jews who would have been believers in Christ. Some were just Jews who didn't believe Jesus from Messiah, but they're there, and persecution breaks out. And so if you're part of a church where this atrocity is taking place, you are being persecuted. Bad things are coming your way. Now, 
Another thing that likely happened before that, or we know happened before that, happened in AD 64. At this point in time, the person who's ruling over the nation that is Rome, the great empire that is Rome, is this guy named Nero. You've heard that name? That name even ring a bell at all? Nero. Really, really, really wicked guy, Nero. Uh, to give you a little bit of idea about who Nero was, um, he sexually corrupted little boys. He murdered his mother. He murdered one of his wives because she committed adultery on him. Meanwhile, he was doing the same thing to her. He murdered uh, his lovers and he mother- murdered other men so he could molest their wives. He was a fornicator, homosexual, cross-dresser. He was a pedophile. This is who Nero is. And on top of that, he was a textbook narcissist who excelled at blame shifting. One of the things that Nero did in AD 64, and history documents all of this, is allegedly what most people say happened is that Nero set fire to large portions of Rome because he wanted to burn large portions of Rome down so that he could rebuild it his way, the way he wanted it to. Now, as this happened, thousands upon thousands of people were displaced from their homes as masses of Rome actually is just completely in flames and just burns and burns for almost a week on end. Rome burns until it finally dies out. Now, during this period of time, history recounts all of this. People in Rome were getting ready to send Nero to be killed because everybody knew that he was the one who did it. There were chants that broke out in Rome that said, Nero is an arsonist. Nero is an arsonist. And Nero, in great fashion, completely blame shifts and says, I didn't do this. Do you know who is to blame for Rome burning? This fledgling cult that calls themselves Christians. And so because of this, Nero starts to martyr Christians. He feeds them to lions there as the gladiator battles take place. He sews animal clothes on them as their corpses are there and allows wild dogs to eat them. He throws garden parties and then puts pitch and tar on human beings that call themselves followers of Jesus Christ and uses them like human tiki torches to line his garden parties. This is Nero. This is this wicked, vile emperor. And this happened in AD 64. I believe the letter to the church in Hebrews was written slightly before that. I don't know how early before, weeks, days, months, maybe a couple of years. I think if these things had been happening, the pastors of the church in Hebrews would have definitely referenced these things. But what I see happening here is he knows for this group of people who call themselves Christians, he's writing these things to them and he's encouraging them, hold fast, don't shrink back, stay on the course, do not let go of what you have in Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit tells him to write these words because the Spirit knows what's coming and wants to prepare the people of God. So, why this great history lesson and what in the world does this have to do with anything that's happening right here in McDonough, Georgia, in our country, in your life? What does this have to do with anything? How does this passage, how does this warning, how does this affect our lives? For the sake of everybody in the room, I'm not gonna read to you 
the type of spirit that embodied Nero again, the things that identified his rule and his reign and the way he led his empire. But it's not hard to look around at both our world and even more specifically our nation and to not notice that the very same spirit of Nero is rising its head in our nation and in our world. And the things that defined his empire are the things that seem to be rising up in our world, in our country, in our nation. And I don't, I I never seek out to be prophetic. I never seek out to try to entice undue fear in the people of God that, that really isn't there. But there are times when you, when you preach the whole word of God that you cannot just skip over and downplay actual warnings that are there. And part of my job and duty as a communicator of God's word is to take these time old tested truths and go, how does this apply to our lives right now? And I'm sorry, but I cannot help but draw the connection between Nero and our nation. And so he offers this warning to them and I believe he offers a warning even to us to say, friends, if we are going to be people who do not shrink back, if we're gonna be people who withstand whatever may come, then we have to be people who move from being children living on milk to being mature in our faith, living off of meat. This message to the Hebrew church was not to make the world less hostile towards their faith. It was to strengthen their faith in the midst of a hostile world, which is why he says these words. And I I want you to see these and read these. Flip forward a few chapters to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 32 through 39. Again, we're asking ourselves, Okay, why, why does, his, why does this, this pastor, this Hebrew church, why is he as strong as he is and what he's saying? What's he trying to get at? What's his hope? What's his purpose? This passage here gives us a window into the truth and reality because he references it, that they had experienced some sort of form of persecution as it is already in their church. And what we know from studying history is it did in fact get much worse for them. But listen to what he says before it does. And I pray that it brings you encouragement as I know it did them. Verse 32. But recall the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 33, chapter 10. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Take what you want. I've got something better. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have a need of endurance so that you, when you have done the will of God, may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. I love verse 38. Let it sink deep into your soul this morning. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he turns to the collective church's identity. And he speaks boldly of the identity of the church that he would lead. And I would dare even to speak this over us as his people today. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, pay attention to what he did not say. He did not say, we are of those who do not shrink back and we preserve our bodies. He said, we preserve our souls. You know how we preserve our souls? By having our souls secure in Christ. So secure in Christ that we would say, come whatever may, the worst thing you can do to me is equally the best thing you can ever do to me. And I will count it worthy to suffer in a way that my savior did as well. He's telling them, if you go to one of those stakes and you become a tiki torch for a wicked, vile emperor, do it knowing that you are in great company with your Lord and Savior Christ. Now this is why he gives him this warning. And, and, and sometimes you can get warnings, you can get these things for the Bible where it feels like it punches you in the stomach or steps on your toes. And sometimes it makes us go pout or sometimes it makes us rebel. And what he's trying to do is go, no, like you could potentially be running into oncoming traffic. And, and today, really in the passage we're gonna get into, it, I'm not gonna be able to necessarily pick apart all this other stuff because the thing about a, what makes a good warning a good warning is it is simple and succinct and direct. Warnings were never meant to be complicated. If I see a child getting ready to, to run into oncoming traffic as I'm pulling out of the parking lot, I, I'm not gonna go, hey, um, I don't know how, if you know how cars work, but they have a transmission and a motor and you know, things get firing in there. And, and, and you know, I don't know, like, I don't know if you know how physics works, but, but you weigh a lot less than a car. And so if that, like, no, the, car, the kid's already a speed bump by that time. We have to, when we see something bad happening, just issue short, succinct, imperative, strong warning. And that's what I believe our passage is, so... As we walk through this, my prayer is that you would not let this just be a warning for the church at the, the Hebrew Christians, but you would let this be a warning even for McDonough Christians, us. Let's dive in. He says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, <clears throat> when he says this, he's referencing back to this concept of Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time explaining that. What he's trying to do is say, Jesus is the great high priest. He represents God to us and he represents us to God. And he's saying he's in the order of Melchizedek. We're gonna explain that a little more in the next two weeks, which basically means to sum it up as fast as I can in three points, that he is chosen by God, that Jesus is king and Jesus is priest. Those three things. And what the pastors of the church in Hebrew is saying, he's like, hey, I really wanna explain all of this to you. But... It's hard to explain. Now, it's not hard to explain because what he's trying to explain is hard. It's hard to explain because they've become dull of hearing. 
The problem isn't the message. The problem is the hearers. And so he says, I wish I could go into all this with you guys, but you've become dull of hearing. Now that's not vernacular that we use a whole lot. So let me try to explain to you what I think he's after here. Sometimes it's translated that dull of hearing, this word sluggish or slow of hearing. Here's some of what this means, sluggish or slow of hearing. You know, when you have kids and you tell them something, you explain something to them, you ask them to do something and then they don't move or they don't do that thing. You, yeah, somebody said, mm, yes. <laughs> Collective parental groan in the room. And then you say it again and nothing happens. They don't get up and act on that thing or go do that thing. What do most parents say back to them? They say, did you hear what I said? Now, are we asking the kid if they mentally, through their auditory response system, heard what we said? No. When you say, do you hear what I said? Why are we asking that? Because they haven't moved yet. Because they haven't done the thing. And so that's what the point he's trying to make here is saying, you guys have too big of gap between when you hear something and when you obey something. You're dull in hearing, you're sluggish, you're slow to hear. And so the question I would ask and the thing that I think he's trying to explain to them is there's a gap between whether you are dull or diligent in your hearing. See, this diligent hearing is a type of hearing that hears, but it hears because it's expecting to hear. See, sometimes I think in regards to our relationship with God, we kind of treat it like, like a boss at work. And we know the boss has a job and we know we have a job. And so sometimes we'll just go into the boss's office. You know, he's got some stuff going on that are really important because he's the boss. And we'll go in there and say, hey, um, if you need me to do anything, just let me know. I'm just gonna do my things though. Like I know I have my stuff that I'm gonna work on, but I need you to just tell me if you need me to do anything. Just let me know, I'll be over here. I'll, I'll do my thing, let me know. And that's kind of how we are with God. It's kind of like, hey, I got my things I gotta do. I got, I got, I'm, I'm operating through high school. I'm trying to find a spouse. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do this thing. I'm trying to build my career. God, I'm, I'm doing my thing, okay? And I'll be over here. If you wanna interrupt my regu regularly scheduled program, feel free to interrupt. I'll be out here listening to you because I'm a good Christian. That's what I do. But if you wanna get with me, just let me know. Send something, a sign, cloud, something. I don't know. But that's not diligent listening. Diligent listening starts out the day going, I can't make it through this if you don't speak to me, if you don't guide me. I can't make it through this work. I can't make it through this relationships. I can't make it through this parenting endeavor. I can't make it through the summer with these kids. God, would you please speak and reveal yourself to me? And, and, and my hope and my prayer is that I would be able to diligently hear what you say and obey what you say. It's the same thing. Parents, we know this. Obey what I say right away. How many times? I mean, that gets repeated in the shoemaker column a lot. Obey what I say right away. It's easy to spit that stuff out. It's easy to tell kids to do it. It's not easy to do it as grownups when our parent is doing it to us, God the Father. So, question becomes if in my life I don't feel like Jesus is speaking to me, I don't feel like I'm hearing anything from him. I can't remember the last time where I really felt like I was truly obeying something that he told me to do. The question then becomes, well, well maybe, have I tuned Jesus out? Like it, and again, this can, be, this can happen, right? 
We have so much stuff in the world. Like if you, if you don't show up and kind of have that moment where you show like, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting you, I'm gonna diligently seek to hear from you so that you can guide me in my life. If we don't do that, if we just get up and we pull up our phone and we immediately go to Instagram or we immediately go to Facebook or we immediately go check the news or see what kind of crazy stuff happened today, if we immediately go to those things, what you've in, inadvertently maybe done is I have tuned Jesus out. I'm not giving him a voice to be able to speak into my life. And so maybe you're hearing you going, well, how do I know if I tuned Jesus out? I would say, here is the diagnostic question. Am I slowing or am I growing? If you have, to, if you have tuned Jesus in and you are tuned into his word, you will be growing. Whether that growth is through surrender or that growth is through active steps of obedience. But if you have tuned him out, you will find yourself lethargic. You will find yourself apathetic. You will find yourself being led by the flesh, not by the spirit, living in a perpetual state of gray. So this is how we know. He goes on from here in this passage. He says, for by this time, you guys ought to be teachers. You, but you need somebody to come and teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Right, let's, he says, for this time, which again, when we see this time, the good news here is he's saying there is a process to spiritual growth. Around here at MCC, we use these two words, spiritual formation. Spiritual formation with a capital S. Holy Spirit forming me into, over a process of time, who I was created to be in Christ. And what he's saying here is some of you have been following Jesus for so long. You've been attending these local gatherings here at this church for so long that you should be at the place now where you're not just living on milk, but you're actually teaching other people. You're actually explaining things to others. And the point I love here in this is for everybody who claims to be a Christian, you don't have the option to just be someone who ingests God's word. Your, your God expects and does not let it be optional that you would just be someone who gets it in but that you would be someone who gives it out, who actually teaches. Now, what that means is you all don't have to quit your job and go to seminary and become a pastor and get on stage and teach with a microphone attached to your face. What this means is that in different instances in your life, whether it's coaching Little League or whether it's your job in the corporate world or what you do at school, he said, these are these places, these are these things where you live, work, and play, where you should be building relationships with other people so that you're able to teach them and even teach within the local church. You should be a teacher by now because you've got enough lessons under your belt. And I don't know what the magic number is for you guys. How many sermons do you got to hear before you start teaching? How many Bible books do you have to go through before you start teaching? I don't know what that magic number for you is. But you know when you ignore. You know when you disobey when the Holy Spirit's leading you to teach, to give that encouragement out, to take people to the truth. You know when that is. He says, you need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And I know on the surface that sounds all Lord of the Ringsy, the oracles of God. But what he's essentially saying here is you need somebody to take you back to the basics. What are the basics? The basics is the gospel, this good news message about Jesus Christ. And that's why he spends so much time just leaning into the straight up gospel. He, he, he's explaining over and over and over again who Jesus is. 
that the work is finished, that you can never save yourself. That's why he spends two chapters talking to the church in Hebrews about rest. He's saying, rest in Jesus. The work is finished. You cannot work yourself into God's good graces. You have to receive that grace from the Jesus who finished the work, who knows what it's like to be you, has experienced what you've experienced, walked through what you walked through, and therefore offers you a true priest made possible by his blood shed on a cross. So he says, you need milk, not solid food. So basically saying, like, I've got to continue to go back and give you guys these foundational rudimentary principles because I can't move on yet. Now, when he says you need milk and not solid food, he's not saying milk is worse than solid food or milk is a bad thing. Milk is essential. Like if we had baby dedication up here like we did a few weeks ago, and then after baby dedication, we said, hey, y'all, these kids are dedicated to the Lord now, all right? And I need you to drop all your bottles, you know, lay them on the off- offering, like lay all the bottles, the breast milks, all that, lay them all down. And, and on your way out, pick up your, 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 your freezer full of frozen steaks and start giving those kids that. We'd all, like the kids wouldn't make it because during that period of time, that's what they're supposed to live off of, right? That's essential. You gotta get the basics before you can move on to the things. You gotta allow the milk Think about it from a kid's side of things. You gotta allow the milk and the nutrients that come through the milk to develop molars and incisors and canines so that you can actually chew and decompose the nutrients that are found in the heavier, weightier, thicker things so that you can digest those and allow then the true process of growth to happen. And I hope that that's what's happening to us. I hope that's what we experience. Pastor goes on from here in verse 13, he says, Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He's basically saying like, you know, the equivalent of like, hey, splash in the summer event is gonna be an awesome event. But if one of you, you know, 50 year olds shows up with you know, floaties and swimming trunks on and you try to get on the slide to them kids, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna get you. Like, you know, we got a really good strong security team here and they're gonna, they're gonna take you down, all right? That's weird. And that's what he's saying here. It's like, this is weird. We can't do this. We can't be childish about it. Now, we hear this, and again, this is a strong rebuke, a strong reprimand. The next verse shows us kind of why he's going here and why we have to get off of the milk and get to the meat. He says, but solid food, the meat, meat is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Oh, that's why I need meat. The milk is what illuminated the gospel story to me. The, the milk is the thing that was the foundational. The milk is the message that I took in and was nutrients for my heart. The milk is oftentimes the stuff that opens our heart and gives us that receptivity to receive the grace and free gift of mercy from Jesus that like flings wide the gates of our salvation, invites us into this family of God. Most of the time it is that milk that lays that foundation, but it's the meat that then allows us to enter into sanctification so that we can walk through a world that has good and evil in it. And so the, the, the purpose of the meat is not so that you, you can get saved again off of meat. The purpose of the meat is so you can keep yourself from this evil, broken world. The purpose of the meat is so that you are able to actually develop discernment so that you can go, ooh, because I know the word, I know how that lie that culture is spreading is completely demolished by scripture. Because I know the word, I know what I should do with my money is not what that person 
says I should do with my money, because I know what scripture says, I know that what I should do with my body and my sexuality is not what that person says to do with my body. Because I know the word, I am able to trust and obey a father who says, despite whatever is happening in this world, that I am in him and he is in me. This discernment, to be able to actually know good from evil, to be tender to the wickedness of the world, not in a way that you're soft with it or not in a way that you're like, I'm, I'm just gonna kind of placate with it, but tender in a way to where when it happens, you feel it and it is disgusting the way that's supposed to be disgusting. Maybe you've experienced this. You start initially walking with Jesus and you find yourself in some of those old habits and some of those old places, but you get in the word. You get around context of a Christian community and what starts to happen is you get back in one of those environments and most people have had this experience in their Christian walk at some point or another. Things you used to do, you find yourself on the precipice of doing them, but this twist and knot and, and nausea in your stomach begins to well up and that is a gift from God. Because you've eaten the meat, that thing that used to taste so satisfying is now repulsive because here's why you've tasted and seen something that is truly satisfying in the world. And you know how fake, how empty, and how even poisonous the thing that the world would offer in is because you actually have discernment and you've been trained by constant practice. This is why consistently, again, like, if you came to church for the first time in a long time, if you gave a list of somebody and said, hey, what's the things I can probably hear today? Well, at some point, the pastor's probably gonna tell me to read my Bible more often. And here that goes. This is what this verse means. And, and I hate to keep coming back to the, the basic stuff here, guys. But this is why it's so important for us to be in the word. He says, it is a constant practice. It's where we get our training. That word trained is the same word where we get our word for gymnasium. It's a Greek word gymnasium. It's where we get our word for gym, the workout room, weight room. He's like looking at the people and he's going, guys, it takes constant practice. And I would say even to our context here, we've kind of made Sunday the day where we do a lot of our gymnasio and our training. We get open in God's word. But listen, even the best, most skilled athletes in the world, I could go give you the best exercise workout routine ever that ever existed and say, go do this on Sunday. Do you know what you're not gonna do? You're not gonna get in shape for working out one day a week. You will not get in shape. You, if you only eat on Sundays, you will eventually have a very, very short life going off of one meal a week. And that's the point I believe he's trying to make. He said, this is something we have to constantly, constantly, constantly go to. And let's talk about Sunday while we're on one. I'm gonna do my best to try to still show you and teach you and lean into the meat that is bound up in this. But these gatherings here are really to take us back to the milk the, the beautiful foundational things that are the gospel so that we can go, okay, we love what's happening. We love the things that are going on in the meat. We love the things that are going on all the sides and the trappings and all these things we're getting through God's word that are giving us this discernment. But at the end of the day, what a lot of our gatherings are for is for the milk, the foundational truths of the gospel. Because here's what I love about our church. We're not just this church where everybody's coming in with a master's in divinity already. 
There's people walking in. There's people here in the day who have not gone to church in years and months. And listen, if that's one of you, I, I, that is awesome. We praise God for that. That's the reason why, why I'm not gonna get up here and spend an hour and a half talking to you about who Melchizedek is. You know, you, you invite your friend to church, first time they ever come to church. Well, it was 45 minutes of him talking about Melchizedek. And you're, 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 you're in the car ride home going, hey, I'm sorry, like I'll buy your lunch today. I don't know what that was. <laughs> Here's why. Melchizedek and all the knowledge you could ever get about Melchizedek is not gonna save your friend. Jesus will. That's why we've gotta continue to lean to the foundational truth of who Jesus is. And maybe, just maybe, not show up, those of you who already got that, not showing up in, in Christian sermon snobbery going, well, today wasn't a great sermon because I didn't learn anything new. Today wasn't a great message. I, well, well, you know, it was just the gospel again. Mm. I didn't get anything out of that. See, this, this is where we go the gospel is so good that if I hear it and it alone every single Sunday until I go home to be with Jesus, it'll be enough. Because where I get the meaty revelation is not in a Sunday from Trent. It's in my own prayer closet. It's in me opening God's word and saying, Father, speak to me. You know the evil that I'm gonna face that Trent had no idea I was gonna face. So you give me training and discernment so I can distinguish that. I don't know what, look, there's a lot of people in this room. I have no idea what evil all of you guys are gonna experience. I only know the evil I experience. And so what that means is you need scripture for what you're going through. And I could preach every verse of this entire Bible, but we're not all gonna be around enough to be able to see and experience that so it can specifically be the prescription you need. That's why you've gotta take your prescription home with you and take it once a day, maybe more, so that you'll be able to test and discern and grow. Now, lastly, when he talks about maturity, I want you to know what maturity isn't. Maturity isn't just knowledge. I've had the privilege of going to Bible college. I've had the privilege of meeting professors and people with doctorates and people with a lot of you know, little letters at the end of their titles. And, and here's what I can tell you is I have met some of them, not all of them, but I've met some of them that are just plain hard-hearted I've met some of them that in my weak moments, I would even say whether, I still don't know if this is sinful or not, but the way I felt was that they were pharisaical. They reminded me of the Pharisees who knew the letter. The Pharisees had more knowledge than anybody in this room would ever have of the things of God. If there was any group of people who knew enough about scripture in order to clearly see who the Messiah was and absolutely understand that it was Jesus, it was the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. And you know who killed him or helped kill him? Those guys. So what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus does not want you to become great at Bible trivia. He wants you in the same way that Get to get back where I started, you know some things so that you can do some things. This is why we get to maturity, not by knowing more, but by actually doing more with what we know. 
by letting, letting the Holy Spirit wring us out of what it's dwelled in. So today I'll set up communion and let us end with the same question I've already taken you to. Am I slowing or am I growing? Are you slow to listen? Are you still on the milk? Listen, this world is, is not, I, in the same way that I believe the pastor of Hebrews said to his church, I'll say to you, would I love for it to get better? This world that we live in? Goodness, yes. For the sake of my children and my grandchildren, I would love for the, the lies against their identity to not be perpetuated and shoved down their throats. I would absolutely love that. I would love to not have to screen literally everything that my children see. I would, I would, I would love to let my kids go spend the night at whoever's house because there was a level of trust and care and responsibility because we were like-minded, meat-chewing, discerning believers. And I would love for even this nation that, that we all live in and reside in to perpetuate those morals and that truth and that gospel and give that grace and give that mercy. But guys, I just do not think that is what's going to happen. And I, listen, I hope I'm actually wrong. I hope a great uprising of, of followers of Christ lead to an amazing revival in this country. I, I will pray until I can pray no more that that would actually be something that would happen here. But we would be naive if we just crossed our fingers, hoped and prayed and go, God, just make it better. Instead, maybe a more open-handed, surrendered prayer is Jesus, my prayer is that you would make it better, that you would rise up godly leaders, that you would rise up a godly people in government, that you would rise up godly lawmakers, that you would raise up your church, your fathers, the men in your church, the women in your church, that we would be a generation who sees things begin to turn, not just for our nation. At the end of the day, our nation is a Christian nation, not one with red, white, and blue stripes, but one that is defined by one color, red, that makes us all unified. But we would be a people who would rise up and see that. Jesus, we want that to happen. But if it doesn't, we will not shrink back. Take our body, take our money, take our possessions, take our livelihood. You cannot take our soul. We know that Jesus, our soul secure in you. And so let us know so much of the truth that we never fall back, placate, walk in, downgrade our faith, downgrade you, water down the gospel so that we can fit in and avoid whatever persecution may come. Jesus, come whatever may. Let us be found firmly rooted in the gospel, standing firm. And that's my hope for us, that come whatever may, whether things go north or things go south, our feet are firmly planted on the gospel of Christ. And so as you commune with him today, pray you ask not just yourself that question today, but you ask him that question and you give him some time to speak to you. Jesus, am I slowing or am I growing? Just, just talk to him. He'll lead you where he needs to lead you. He'll talk to you about what he wants to talk to you about. He'll take you where he wants to take you. As you see this 
bread that represents his body broken for you and this cup that represents his blood poured out for you. Pray that you know that that happened so that you could be in him and he could be in you. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord, if you've never tasted even the milk of the gospel and allowed that to wake up your life to the truth that's in there, I'd love to walk you through. What does it mean to follow this God? What does it mean to surrender your life to him? What does it mean to receive salvation and miss out on the damnation that is coming if we do not? And as you meet with him and pray and talk, I pray that your heart just turns to praise, to praise a God is willing to go through what he went through so that you could have the strength to stand in the midst of whatever you would go through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. Father, I thank you that we see all of those things in the most high definition place of all as we lock eyes with your son. And I pray that we're able to do that right now as we take this sacrament of this holy communion body broken and this blood poured out for the unification of the church and for the forgiveness of our sins. Make us one in you, Jesus.